Now, Ned Lakin went to a theological seminary to train to become a pastor in the United States. One day, the seminary class took a field trip to New York City. And they decided, as part of this field trip, to go to the red light district to witness the exploitation of women firsthand. They walked into pawn shops and saw the reality, the graphic reality of the forbidden fruit. Ned Lurking was shocked by what he saw, and he was even disgusted by it. And yet at the same time, strangely, he was also fascinated by it. Ned says, writing letter says, it hooked me deep. And within days, this young man, this pastoral student, found himself slipping away from his seminary classes and seeking out a source for this new addiction. Ned told himself, I'll stop sinning next week. I'll stop when I graduate seminary. I'll stop when I get a job as a pastor. I'll stop next year. There was always a reason for Ned, always a deadline, always a fresh resolution to get rid of this sin. But the hook of sin was now too deep. He couldn't stop. Ned says, before I knew it, I am a pastor married, three kids, and I'm picking up my first prostitute on my way to lead a candlelight service on Christmas Eve. He says, I lost, in his book, he says, I lost any hope that I could stop what I was doing. As I think about Ned's story, it reminds us about the seriousness of sin, the danger we all face to sin. So this evening, I want to talk to you about sin. Uh, what is sin? What are the dangers and consequences of sin in our lives? And how can we help one another as believers in this church to fight against sin? Now, of course, this is a huge topic, of course, isn't it? Because sin establishes the plot line of the Bible. It's at the beginning in Genesis, isn't it? So if, and it goes all the way through Scripture until Revelation, the mystery Babylon. So if we're going to study this topic, probably we really have to do a biblical theology, isn't it? To work through the plot line of Scripture. To fully understand sin and its effect, we need to study the whole Bible. But you'll be glad this evening, very hot evening, that we're not going to do that today, right? Today I just want us to learn about sin from 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 to 17. I want to ask you to learn about why it teaches about sin and its consequences. Now, this does not necessarily make our job easier. Just looking at two verses, right? Because these verses are, in fact, one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Look at verse 15 to 16. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 to 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What is John saying to us in these two difficult verses? I think there are actually three important truths that the Apostle John 
wants to teach us about sin in our lives from these two verses. The first truth we learn in these verses is this. All sin is sin. That's the first truth. All sin is sin. The Bible says everyone is a sinner, including true followers of Christ. Even though God has saved us from sin, we still sin against Him, isn't it? First John chapter 1, verse 8 uh, says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you are a sinner, you know you already sin. At least I hope you know that you have not stopped sinning. There are some strange people who profess to know Christ who think they have stopped sinning. We are all sinners. Now, the problem is that the longer you are a Christian, okay, the more you are tempted to redefine what sin is. You see, when many of us here hear that word sin, we tend to think immediately of the flagrant sins that other people commit rather than all the private sins we commit. And the Apostle John knows this. That is why as he comes to the end of his first letter he's written, he says to his readers and to us reading it 2,000 years later, do not think some sins are small. You must remember that every wrong thing you do is a sin against God. Look at verse 17 there. All wrongdoing is sin. John Wesley once said, there is no little sin. Because there is no little God to sin against. And I think that is similar to what John is saying here uh, in this passage. He's saying every wrongdoing is a sin because it violates the moral law of God. Every sin is rebellion against God. It's, like it's rebellion against the authority of God. And we know that because John has already told us in chapter 3. First John chapter 3 verse 4 says this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, again, if you are a follower of Jesus, you know this already, don't you? But you need to be reminded of this truth because you do not always take sin in your life seriously. And this is clear from the language we use about sin every day in the church. So we like to say, John has a problem with people. Instead of actually saying the truth, which is, John has a sin of hatred in his heart. We like to say Susan likes being the center of attention. Instead, what we actually need to say is that Susan has a sin of self-worship and pride that grieves the very heart of God. We like to say, especially among the men, I am struggling with pornography. Instead of saying the truth, which is, I am an adulterer or I am a fornicator. And that God is angry with my betrayal of our relationship. So we redefine sin, don't we? We talk around it. But even when we as followers of Jesus are honest about naming our sins for what they are before God, what happens is that we tend to focus more on the sins of society rather than our sins. 
We are quick to pray against the war in Ukraine, isn't it? We offer long prayers about killing babies in the womb. We cry out to God against homosexuality in society. And we should. I think that's important. But when was the last time you heard someone come to a prayer meeting and says, Please, beloved, pray for my pride. I need God to deliver me from it. When did you last time hear somebody come to the midweek prayer meeting and says, I need help. I need help. I am a gossiper. I need help. I need to be delivered from my sin of gossip. When did you last time hear somebody come to a prayer meeting and say, look, I need help because I don't love my extended family as I should. I have hatred in my heart towards them. And I know it's a sin before God. And I'm helpless against it. I need you to pray for me for that. My experience as a pastor is that we, I don't offer, rarely, I think I have heard it in this church twice from two different young men. In my old sixth year I've been here. It's a rarity, isn't it? To pray about sin in our own lives. Do you know why we never ask such prayer requests? Do you know why? The reason is that we are not sensitive to the sinfulness of our sin before God. We do not take this truth seriously that John is telling us here, that all sin is sin. We forget that God is holy and righteous and good and perfect. We forget that his being, his very being, hates sin to the core. We forget that the very character of God abominates our sin. Be honest. As I told you that story of net lurking at the start, and I deliberately told it the way I told it. Very conscious, of course, there are children around. But telling it as I told it, with appropriate sensitiveness, but still trying to get across to you the seriousness of what had happened to Ned Lakin. As you heard that story, his descent into pornography and other sins. Are you, were you not shocked by it? Were you not shocked about Ned Lakin's descent into those sins? More than you are shocked by your pride. More than you are shocked by your lies. Your bitterness. Your laziness. Your lack of seriousness about evangelism and other things that God commands. Does not let us not shock you more than all these other things? Of course it does, doesn't it? Same with me. And that's serious, isn't it? Because not taking the sinfulness of your sin seriously is tragic. Why do I say it's tragic? Well, three things. First of all, it cheapens the majesty of God. Remember what John Wesley says, there's no little sin. Because there's no little God to sin against. So when you, take, when you cheapen your sin, you're cheapening the majesty of God himself. That's the first problem. The second problem is that it cheapens the death of Christ for your sin. The death of Christ which once made us weep with joy no longer moves our heart because we forget that Christ died not just for the murderers and, 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 the, and, and the evil dictators. Christ died for, 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 for my ugly lies, my, 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 my gossip. 
We forget that. How can the death of Christ delight us when we have reduced it to just a few sins in our lives? We have reduced the cosmic scope of Christ's coverage for sin to these two few little sins that we get mad about. Serious sins, of course, but we have reduced that, the scope of his death to those sins. We have lost sight of the sinfulness of sin. So it cheapens the majesty of God. It cheapens the death of Christ. And of course, it cheapens our repentance. God commands us every day to pray, forgive us our sins. Every day we are to confess our sins before him. But let me ask you, beloved, if we are not taking sin seriously, are we truly repenting every day? Are we? If we don't take sin seriously, we're not truly repenting. We're not genuinely asking God to cleanse us from daily sin. And God sees through that. He sees through that. So really we have, we are not repenting as we should. And so our union with God, of course, remains solid in Christ. But our communion with God is broken. That's why many Christians are struggling in their lives. Lack of seriousness before God. That's why the church in the land is so weak. Because it's full of believers whose communion with God is broken. And why is it broken? It is broken because there's no serious repentance for sin. And the reason there's no serious repentance for sin is because there's no serious sense of the sinfulness of sin. Do you see, if if you're not growing in sensing the sinfulness of your sin, you're in a very dangerous position. Because all roads in spiritual growth pass here. All roads for Christian growth pass here with recognizing, it all starts with recognizing that all sin is sin. As John says, all wrongdoing is sin. And the blood of Jesus was shed on the cross for us. It is the only remedy to cleanse us from sin. And so this evening I'll ask you again, beloved. Do you really believe what the Bible is teaching you here? Do you truly believe that all sin is sin? Where in your life are you regularly turning a blind eye to the seriousness of sin? Is it pride that you're excusing? Selfishness? Is it your impatience of being always irritated? Are you turning a blind eye to your anger towards your spouse or your kids? Has your heart become discontented and you are happy with that? Are you saying this is just the way I am? You know, I've always been discontented. I've always been an angry person. What is it for you? Is it controlling others? Is it judgmentalism, always seeing other people with faults? Is it envy, jealousy, malicious talk? What is it for you, beloved? Which sin in your life are you tolerating? 
Where are you giving yourself a pass? An excuse that God understands I'm work in progress. Beloved, God wants you to take that sin or sins seriously and to bring it to the foot of the cross in true repentance by turning away from it. And dare I say for some of us, the sin isn't things we do, it's things we omit. The sins of omission. Things God has told you to do and you're not doing them. He's commanded you to read his word and you just don't take that seriously. For example, all sin is sin. Now someone here may ask, if all sin is sin, does it it, it then matter which sin we commit? It's a fair question, isn't it? Strange question, but a fair question. Well, the Bible is clear that all sins damage people, isn't it? Sin, by its nature, imposes an eternal death penalty. And the Bible is also clear that different sins have different physical consequences. And this is the second truth about sin. I just want to share this evening. So the first truth is, all sin is sin. That's the first thing we learn here. The second truth we learn here is that different sins have different consequences. Different sins have different consequences. Consequences. Look at those verses. John in these verses introduces us to two different forms of sin. And the associated consequences to followers of Jesus in this life. He says there may be sins committed by followers of Christ that does not lead to death. And there are some sins which lead to death. Look at verse 16 for example. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, that's one sin. Okay, look at verse 17. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. So these verses, of course, have generated a lot of debate among followers of Christ. I think the key to understanding these verses is simply to ask two questions. The first question is, is always the first where you start in any Bible study. Who is John talking about? The who always comes first. Who is John talking about? Well, the answer is both the audience of the letter and the focus here is followers of Christ. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother okay, committing a sin, not leading to death. His brother is key there, isn't it? Right? So that answers it. It's talking about believers. Right? This is a letter. Fellowship. He's writing to a church. And he's talking about believers. The second question, of course, is what does John mean by death and life here? Well, to answer that question, it is easier first to show what John doesn't mean. I sometimes find that very helpful. If I want to know what something means, I definitely want to know if the Bible rules out what it doesn't mean, right? Now, John here is clear that he's not talking about spiritual death. Because all believers have life. Now, the answer to that is in the wider context of this passage. And that is verse 13. That's why we read verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Here's what he says. I write these things to you. We believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know what? That you have eternal life. 
Okay? So he's not talking about spiritual death because believers have eternal life. Right? Also note, he says that here, we must pray for believers who sin to have life. Okay? That surely means physical life because all believers have eternal life. Right? So I'm doing those two things, right? He's talking about physical death and he's talking about believers, right? What is John saying here? What John is saying is that there are some sins people commit which offends God greatly to the point that God puts them to death. Believers. God takes their physical life. One example, of course, is in Acts 5. It's debated, of course, but I think the context of Acts 5 reminds us that surely Ananias and Sapphira were believers. They had to be because the judgment on them, or the correct, every correction on them, was intended to send as a warning to the church. If they are not believers, then the, the warning is negated. So what we have in Acts 5, we read of this account of Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of property, and they pretend to give all the money to the church. It's a pretense, that's the problem. When in fact, they kept back of the money for themselves. So they lied to God, and they lied to the church. And what does God do? God strike each of them dead on the spot. We have another example in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. An important issue since we're having the Lord's Supper as we come to this. But we read there, some of the Corinthians were partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And what happened? Well, some of them died prematurely as a result of God's discipline. Imagine that. Imagine that. God looks at a church and strikes them dead, just like like he did in the Old Testament. You see, it seems that God sometimes gives believers who entertain certain sins a dishonorable discharge. That takes them away from life quickly. Death. Now, it is not very wise for us to speculate too much on what precisely this sin John has in mind. Why do I say that? Well, I think John doesn't tell us this sin because he wants us to focus on the principle that he has in mind. Of course, by reading Ananias and Sapphira, we get a sense of the gravity of sin that offends God. You know, study, study Acts 5. That, that's one sin that leads to death. In fact, there may be more than one sin. Because the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is very different from the Corinthian sin, which results in death. But the point is, John doesn't want to spell out these sins. His point is that he wants us to focus on the principle. And the principle John wants to impress on our mind is that although all sin is sin, that's the first truth, some sins have devastating consequences that may include physical death. So there is a sense, therefore, that it is true to say some sins are worse than others. Not simply because they're a crescendo of sin, like we see in Romans 1, with the Messiah being worse for that reason, because it is very much is a crescendo of sin. But some sins are worse than others here for a different reason because they just seem to offend God more deeply for whatever reason. 
Now, as I said, this passage is not in the Bible to feed endless speculation on what sort of sin leads to death. My brothers and sisters, it is here to warn us about the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of any sin. It is here to say to all followers of Christ, your new life in God is not a license to toy with sin. Do not test the patience of God by entertaining sin, whatever it is. God will correct you. And that correction may result in your death. Premature death, humanly speaking. And so your, your response is that you must continually examine your heart every day. Whilst it's still caught today, actively identify sin and put it to death. John Owen surely is right. Be killing sin or sin will kill you. We've taken that to mean for non-believers. But a proper understanding of that statement, or a biblical way to see it, is that it is for believers. So identify sin, confess sin before God, and practice genuine repentance, true repentance. A decade ago, the Guardian broke the news that Scotland Yard had found evidence that the news of the world had acted into Millie Dowler's voicemail. And this revelation sparked public outrage against the tabloid newspaper. And of course, it led to the closure of the newspaper on 10th of July 2011. In fact, in this very last edition, the News of the World um, published a full-page editorial apologizing for the hacking of phones. You may remember that. Here is what they said. We praised high standards. We demanded high standards. But as we now only too painfully aware, right? We, know, we now know only too painfully, for a period of a few years up to 2016, some who worked for us in our name fell shamefully short of these standards. Quite simply, we lost our way, phones were hacked, and for this newspaper, and for that, this newspaper is truly sorry. So the News of the World, in effect, followed up its apology by closing down its business. It is now no more. There's no more News of the World. I submit to you this evening, that is true repentance. It's what it looked like. Closing shop on sin. True repentance results in breaking free from sin. It is painful and costly to us, but when we truly repent, we give up that which leads us into sin. Each of us needs to do that with any sin we are tolerating in our lives this evening. Let us make sure we are killing sin by true repentance, or it will destroy us, John is saying. Beloved, Christ has paid a, an infinite price for all our sins. So let us lay aside every word of sin by confessing it before him and forsaking it completely. Stephen Shannock, the wonderful Puritan, whom I love very much, says this, There are no charms in sin, he says, which cannot be overcome by that ravishing love. 
which bubbles up in every drop of our Redeemer's blood. Can we, with lively thought of this, sin against so much tenderness, so much compassion, grace, and other perfections of God which sound so loud in our ears from the cross of Christ? Can we consider the King of glory, our Lord Jesus, hanging there on that cross to deliver us from hell and yet continue walking in the way that leads to hell? Can we take any pleasure in that which caused so much to our best friend, the Lord Jesus? So much pain to our best friend, the Lord Jesus. And then he says this, for the lack of the study of Christ crucified, in effect he's saying, because we don't think much about the cross, we carry on in sin. The point he's saying is that if we truly have Christ as our Lord and Savior, we cannot tolerate sin. We must hurry and truly repent of it. And the good news is that we are never physically alone in the fight against sin. In fact, according to this passage, we have the church to help us. And that is the final truth we learn here. So the first truth is this. All sin is sin. And the big, the big deal with that is that some, the big deal is that different sins have different consequences. So watch out. Repent of sin. But here's the good news. The good news is that we have the church to help us. And the third point, therefore, I frame it like this. We must pray for believers struggling with sin. That's the final point. If sin is so serious, we must pray for believers struggling with sin. Now, I'm currently enjoying reading The Lord of the Rings uh, with my daughter. It's uh, 1,000 pages. I think we are somewhere on 250 now. I've been enjoying reading through this. Now, in The Lord of the Rings, of course, we encounter a ring of power, don't we? A single ring into which the evil sorcerer Sauron has poured all of his magic in that ring. The ring has almost a mind of its own and it desires to return to its master, Sauron. And so as Sauron's minions now search for the ring in the, in the story, Frodo, who has inherited it from his uncle Bilbo Baggins, wants to destroy it, doesn't he? But he finds himself drawn to these evil ring refs. The ring which he wears on his chain, around his chain, what he's doing is he's constantly pulling him towards the power of Mordo. Towards the power of his wicked master, Sauron. And as time passes, he begins to pollute the good and naive, naive Frodo with its evil, right? And towards the end of the story, we have that amazing scene, don't we? That encounter in the book. Frodo has the opportunity to throw this ring into the depths of Mount Doom and destroy it forever. 
But what happens is this, is that he finds it difficult to do it. Despite the pain, despite the torment it has caused him, he hates this evil ring. He really does. He hates what it has done to him. And yet he cannot let it go. He wants to keep it. He wants to tame it. And in the end, you know how Frodo is free? It can only be destroyed when it's literally torn from Frodo's grasp. You know, Frodo's struggle with the ring is a powerful picture, isn't it? Of the powerful force that sin exerts on people. But it is also a wonderful reminder that once we are in a grip of sin, we need help for, for it to be torn from our daily grasp. Christ, of course, has paid the penalty of our sin um, by his death on the cross. He's defeated sin. And his resurrection has broken the power of sin of our lives. He has torn sin from our grip. Right? If you're a follower of Christ, you have a new life that is free from the control of sin. You are now born of God. So you can, so, you can say no to sin. But the presence of sin, three Ps there, right? The penalty of sin, the power of sin, all done. But the presence, the third P, the presence of sin in your life has not been completely removed. The Holy Spirit now is, is working in us, you see, every day to rid us of the presence of this sin. But it will, sin will only be removed when we see Christ face to face, Right? On that great day when we shall be changed to be like Christ. In the meantime, God is at work in our lives to progressively remove the presence of sin. And our responsibility, beloved, is to cooperate with God to resist sin. How do we do that? Well, there are many resources God has given us to help remove the presence of sin in our lives. God has given us the Holy Spirit who is working and changing us. He has given us the means of grace, reading the Bible, gathered worship, prayer, the Lord's Supper. But John here flags up a resource we are prone to forget. The intercessory prayer ministry of other followers of Christ. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray for that brother, and God will give that brother life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. In other words, what John is saying is that God uses the prayers of other believers to keep us from the deadly consequences of sin. So we need to pray for one another. And John is clear that he's not asking us to pray for people who commit a sin that results in death. Because such people are already dead. That's what he means. So don't pray for the dead. Don't pray for the dead. Only pray for believers who are alive, he's saying. You see, it would seem in John's day some people wanted to pray for people who had died. Probably they were worried about their eternal state. So John here dealing with a particular error says, he wants to be clear, such prayers are unnecessary for believers. We should pray instead only for those who are alive so that they may not die in sin. And I think this passage wonderfully answers all these talk about prayers for the dead. He says, don't do that, says John. Isn't God so wonderful? Every issue we are facing, and he answers it. 
John wants us to pray for one another. You know, the prophet Samuel said to the people of Israel, Far be it for me that... How does that finish? Amen, sister. Amen, sister Mary. That I should sin against the Lord. How? By ceasing to pray for you. Imagine that. Sinning by refusing to pray for the saints. First Samuel 12, 23. Oh, followers of Christ, we need each other when we are struggling against sin. And in some circumstances, failure to pray for other believers is a sin against God. We all need people who pray us back to spiritual health and vitality. The command in this passage is simple. When you see a brother and sister struggling with sin, don't just stand around. Pray for somebody. Don't criticize them or condemn them, but rather pray for them. And I need to hear this, especially when I'm, well, I'm not on Twitter now, but sometimes somebody sends me a link and he sends me to Twitter and I find out about some, 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 some public Christian who has committed a sin and, and my response isn't always gracious. John says, what should be my response? Prayer for that person. Pray for them. And the same is true in the church. You've seen somebody struggling with sin. Pray for them. Even before you speak to them. I wonder, is there someone in this fellowship you know who is struggling with a particular sin? Laziness. Worldliness. Self-focus. Gossip. Pride or some other sin. Does their situation break your heart? Are you weeping for their sin before God? Are you concerned enough to pray for them? There I said, do you love them enough to create opportunities for you to minister God's love to them? To get to know them so that you can pray better for them? It's an important question to ask ourselves. Now, we started off with networking, didn't we? Well, the wonderful, as we come to an end, I just want to tell you the wonderful news is that networking found victory over the sin which nearly destroyed his life. And he wrote about that in the book, I Am Second. It's got a compilation of many stories of saints God has served through difficult circumstances and even believers that are backslidden and God had restored. And so Net found victory over that sin. How did he overcome the problems in the end? Here is what he says in the book. Healing comes, I think, a bit of Bonhoeffer in here. Healing comes when we confess our sins to one another and pray for each other. He says, I was so blessed to find the other broken Christians with whom it was safe to tell the truth. He says, they didn't have to raise their alarm that there was a sinner among them. They knew they were sinners. They just welcomed me in as a brother. You know, Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, makes this point, isn't it? When we sin, we must repent, don't we? We, conf- we? we confess before God. But victory for many sins in our lives, especially those we struggle with deeply, only happens once you confess your struggle with somebody else. 
And that has been my experience observing many believers. And you can usually tell who wants to conquer sin in their lives. The person who wants to conquer sin, and they seriously mean it, they confess the sin. They talk about the sin they're struggling with. And then you know they are on the path to defeat that sin. Because they really are open about the need for help. Whenever we are not confessing sins to one another, beloved, it doesn't matter how many prayers we are offering to God to repent of it. You will never overcome pornography until you are willing to confess it. And if you are married to your spouse first, of course. And then if you are a woman to another sister in the church, you can help to pray for you specifically. Confession, fellowship, and prayer for one another is God's formula to keep us from sin. Beloved, you may not like it, but this local church that God has placed you in is key for you to defeat sin. And you are key to help others grow in defeating sin. One of the ways God works to remove sin in our lives is to send us people in our lives who are truly committed to pray for us and listen to me, Stick with us. Don't miss that. Not just pray for us, but people are willing to put up with us. Many of us, yes, we are the redeemed. We are the redeemed of God. But we are not nice people. I'm sorry to say, beloved, you are not a Christian because you are a nice person. Most of us are rough on the edge. And because of that, people easily give up on us. They do. They judge us and they move on. But praise God that the church of God is different. Because Christ is in his church. It is founded by the one way love of God. God has filled his grace in our lives and his Having put his grace in our lives, he makes us stick with people. And he makes other people stick with us. Even when we don't want them to stick with us. That's the church. And it's wonderful. Praise the Lord for people who stick with us. I want people in my life who want to stick with me. Listen, I want people who want to stick with me. They see Chola is a mess, and I know that. But they want to stick with me as a believer. And praise God, the church is like that. Now the challenge for us here is we need to do that for others, don't we? As we come to an end, I just want to say, look, today, why don't you pick someone in the fellowship? Perhaps you have noticed struggles with some sin. Ask God to reveal to you more about their struggle. Ask God to use you to help them overcome that sin. To be involved in the ministry of restoration. You know, I love the way the Apostle Paul ends his second letter to the church at Corinth. It's my favorite letter in the Bible. He says, finally, brothers, and I think sisters, rejoice, he says. M for restoration. M for restoration. I mean, just that, I, could, I feel like starting another sermon. <laughs> M for restoration. M for restoration at home, in your extended family, with your children, 
with difficult people in your life, at places of work, your M should be restoration. And of course, in the church, M for restoration. Broken relationship, M for restoration. Are they struggling with sin? Help them to be restored. And then Paul goes on and says, comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. And so just to summarize, we've seen that all sin is sin, but different sins have different consequences. Some sins can literally lead to our physical death. And so this means we must take sin seriously by not only seeking to live holy, but also by praying earnestly for those among us who are struggling against sin. Amen.